Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. As a guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days in the field. This show is about translating my hard-won experiences into tips and tactics that will get you closer to your ultimate goal, success in the field. I'm Remy Warren. This is Cutting the Distance. Welcome back, Cutting the Distance Nation. I'm your host, Remy Warren. Today, we're going to the mailbox to answer your questions. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. I was just trying to switch it up a little bit. <laughs> some of these, some of these intros seem uh, repetitive, so throw out the old uh, radio man voice. Maybe you guys liked that. I don't know if you liked that. Let me know. I'll just do the whole podcast in radio man voice. But what I want to do is this week we're going to be jumping into your questions, as Radio Man said, heading to the mailbox. And oh man, I've got a just pile of success stories. I'll just read a couple here. Colin Johnson says, elk party and it was over. Just picture of a big old bull. Jason Leroy says, thanks for podcast 55. I created a party and the biggest bull ever came in to join. You're completely changing my hunting world. Thank you. Thank you. Then we got one here from Rob Garrett. He says, Remy, love the podcast. Thanks for putting them out. Put one of your mentioned tactics to work on this guy and help me bring home a dream Roosevelt. I laughed when you mentioned it on the podcast, but I had nothing left in my bag of tricks. After raking and bugling, I decided to take a leak on the ground. This gave me the one final bugle I needed to close the distance. I would think between all our elk series, I mean, I've just got so many messages here of success stories, awesome photos. Thank you guys so much for sending those in. They are incredible. I think I've had, I was trying to tally them up, a little over 50 messages of just success pictures, maybe even 60, of success pictures, first-time elk kills, a lot lot of them first-time elk kills. 
and most of them attributing to su- success to one of the most recent podcasts. I would say the number one tactic people are pulling out this season, elk party. That tactic has just been gold. And I myself elk partied a bull in this last week. Gosh, I was just, I was calling for my buddy Dusty. And I think in seven days, I don't even, I just countless bulls within range. He was recurve hunting and we, I don't know. It was like one of the best weeks of elk hunting I've ever had. And I don't know how we didn't shoot a bull. It was like every bull did not offer a shot. I'd say like a dozen bulls, 20 yards or less. It's something like we called one bull in three times and just no shots, like thick stuff, always stopping. He had one bull five yards from him and just thick stuff, no shot. So that just happens, man. You could have everything right. You could have a great situation and sometimes just no, no shot, no opportunity, but really good elk season so far and a lot of people just sharing their success and using a lot of these tactics and they're obviously tactics that i use myself so i love hearing that thank you guys let's jump into a few of these questions here i've got a list of them this week we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of different stuff we got some upland stuff some different species a lot of questions on camping and gear and all the good things that are involved with hunting all the questions that you guys have so let's jump in right here Since we're talking elk, let's just keep some of these elk questions going and then we'll jump into some other stuff. The first one says, is from Tyler. He says, Hey Remy, love the podcast. I grew up hunting whitetails, slug hunting in Minnesota, and now live in Montana, learning how to Western big game hunt. Your podcast has been extremely helpful. One question I had was about calling elk in rifle season, November time. Being after the rut mostly, is there any utility in using calls this time of year? Or is it more spot and stock at this point? Thanks again for your help, Tyler. That's a great question. I always have elk calls with me no matter the time of year. So from archery season through even late season, December, whatever, I'll have elk calls with me. The use of those elk calls changes. So by the time November hits, you aren't, unless, I mean, I have random a random story of a bugling bull in November. Super, super rare. Uh, you aren't really probably going to call elk in unless it's a certain scenario that time of year. But you want those elk calls because, yes, it's going to be a spot and stock game. However, those elk calls will be used primarily to stop elk. If you bump elk, I would say 99.99% of the time, if you hit that elk call like a cow call or even a, a bugle later season, as long as there's not a lot of other hunters that might you know, the loud noise might draw to your location, it'll stop those elk. And I use it constantly. Also, as I'm walking through timber or maybe making noise or getting close to elk, I have that cow call out and I might just do those soft cow calls as I'm walking. Sometimes you might get a response from another cow or just put elk at ease if um, they hear something moving through the woods. So those calls are effective all year long, but their like intentions and purpose change. So normally I use them later for stopping elk primarily. And then as just a calming technique or as I'm moving through, sometimes a little bit of location with the cow call, but very rarely. Now, if I have a scenario where I see like a lone cow and I'm cow hunting or whatever, I might be able to draw that cow to my location using a cow call, but generally it's just for spooking elk. So as I'm moving in, a lot of times I have that cow call just at hand because the second if I if I mess up or the, something happens, I need to get a quick shot or even after you shoot, man, use this tactic guiding when a guy shoots i just wrench on the cow call because they 
they hear that sound and it makes them curious. They stop. They want to look almost every time. I would say pretty much every time. So definitely still use calls, but you won't be calling them in like September. This next question comes from Josh. He says, how do you choose your camp area when you're out hunting? I, I got a lot of questions about that. You know, a lot of people asking, okay, what's too close to my hunting area? How do I decide where to camp? You know, it depends on where you're hunting. Like if you're, if you're going to be hunting based out of, let's say what I call like truck camping, where you're camping off the road and then day hunting different areas. I like to pick a camp central to a lot of different places close to where I'm hunting, but also good access to other places that I'm going to be going. Uh, maybe you're going to hunt up this one trail one day and another, another day. So just having good access is a great way to choose your camp location. Now, if you're packed in, a lot of people get worried about camping too close to the animals. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't pitch my camp right in the area where they're feeding. I like to kind of keep it a little ways away and obviously downwind. It depends on how you're going to be camping as well. Like if you're going to be, I would say like low impact camping where you're, you're bivouac hunting, you're just kind of camping as you stop, you can camp a lot closer. You stay quiet at night. You don't build a big fire. You don't hoop it up. Then you don't have to be so far away. I mean, you could be within half a mile, quarter mile, maybe even near just the ridge below where the animals are hanging out as long as you're just kind of keeping to yourself and not really disturbing that area. Now, when you're talking about maybe just picking a specific spot for a camp or a tent or other things, it can be difficult sometimes. I mean, I go through that too where I'm like out hiking and I was like, okay, is this a good spot to camp? Here's what I look for. I look for a flat spot. I look for something tucked out of the wind. I look for a safe place where I, I definitely do not ever pitch a camp in burned areas with trees around. You're better off being out in the open if there's like a lot of timber potential for trees to fall or trees if you got some kind of shelter to keep you out of the wind, but definitely live trees. So you just want to be thinking of those things. And then anywhere that might be protected from the prevailing winds is always good, but it's not always possible. You know, I, I never really set my camps up on ridge lines or ridge tops. One, it just gives away your position. Maybe, maybe there are some good animals around where you're at. So try to keep a low profile when I set up my camp, but I'm first off looking for a flat spot. And then I, I extrapolate out a good campsite from there. Got a question here from Brian Rhodes, a little small game question. He says, just started binge listening to your podcast while I'm at work, seven or eight hours a day. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> All day, every day. So he says, I know you're, you like to checker hunt. He says, I can't do big game this year due to back surgery a few months back, but checker, one of my favorite wild game to eat. Counting down until I can chase checker in Southern California without a dog. Would love some tips or just hear checker hunting stories. Thanks for sharing your info. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great suggestion. I'll definitely probably hit on some checker hunting stuff in the future. For those of you that don't know, checker, just a type of partridge and where I hunt them in Nevada or even where Brian probably hunts them here in Southern California, there's places in Utah and Idaho, man, it's, it's a rugged, rough hunt. It's about like hunting wild sheep, but you're chasing these birds around. They jump far. They, they run a lot. They can be difficult to find and you put on some serious miles and some serious countries. So that has the recipe for everything I like, and I grew up doing it. Uh, for a long time, I, I hunted them a lot without a dog. And I would say a few things, a few tips. I mean, obviously, get those boots broken in. You're going to be putting a lot of miles on. They generally like to run up from down below, the, the water in the bottoms, run up to the tops. So I pick those like 
top roosting zones and try to pick those areas where like the rougher the terrain, the more chucker you find. That just happens to be how it works. After I bust them up, I use my voice to call a lot to try to relocate them and using my ears a lot. So practice making that chucker sound that might have sounded annoying over this microphone but uh getting that chucker sound out there and getting it to echo through the canyon you'll start hearing them trying to group back up as they group back up and you can follow in there when i get close if i don't have a dog i'll actually use my binoculars a lot so if i don't have a dog i'm glassing a lot trying to see him hopping on rocks and other places and also calling so those are some really good tactics if you don't have a dog to help you find them to, to get in close. And then as I get in close, I actually sneak because I don't want them jumping too early. If I know it's a big group too, if that first one jumps up just out of range, don't shoot. Oh, <laughs> try to get closer. I realize that when I'm hunting other things and I jump chucker, I end up getting a lot closer to the big covey than taking a long bomb on the single that jumps early. So that's a, a little bit of a helpful tactic. If you got one or two that jump and you know, there's more, uh, don't take those long shots because then you're going to get the rest of the flock to jump too far out. Be patient, get in close, and, and make some good jumps, some good shots. This next question comes from Bradley Grow. He says, hey, Remy, love what you do and have heard every podcast you have. I do have a question. I drew a late season archery elk tag in Arizona. I've heard some of your tips for locating them, but was wondering if you have any tips for closing the gap. I've hunted deer throughout the West and understand spot and stock. Is there anything you would add to hunting elk in the late season? Thanks for all that you do. That, that's a great question. And I know those late season elk hunts, especially with a bow can be difficult, but it's a good tag to have because it's a little bit easier to get some of those tags in some good areas. There's a lot of, a lot of areas around actually that have some late season hunts. And actually for Arizona, I would say, well, anywhere, uh, for, for late season, what I would probably do is mostly plan on, it's, it's all going to be spot and stock, but I would plan on glassing in the mornings, watching where they go, then get into a position very close to where they went midday and kind of a, a technique of stalking and ambushing simultaneously, where if you can't see where they went into, maybe setting up where they might go or come out to, and then planning your stock as they're moving in to feed for the evenings. Another really good option is just if you can see one bedded, that's that's a great time to stalk a bull. I would say out of elk, deer, antelope, elk are probably the easiest animal to, to stalk because they don't necessarily care about sound as much. Late season, those bulls might be broken off on their own, so they might just be solitary. They're a big animal. When they're bedded, they can be fairly easy to creep on. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy, but between elk, deer or antelope i would if someone's like you have to stock one and you got to be successful i would choose elk because they you can get away with a lot more now you just have to obviously watch the wind watch their eyes but if you've got a solitary bull or maybe a group of bulls bedded that's going to be your best opportunity if they're bedding and really thick stuff you know try that combination of spotting them in the morning and then trying a a combo ambush stock in the evenings if that works if you can't relocate them and, and make a good stock on a known location of that elk all right we're going to travel down to texas we got a access deer question this one comes from jeffrey i'm just going to kind of paraphrase here but essentially what he's got going on is he's got a small piece of property maybe 40 acres and he's going to start hunting it with a recurve he's got some access deer that are coming in 
but he says he, st- he stalked several bucks within 40 yards and had some wander by about that close. He just needs them closer because he's recurve hunting. Wanted to know if I have any tips or tricks on how to get within distance under those circumstances. Now, he can't really stalk because it's a smaller piece of property and it keeps bumping him off. Um, but also he's set up and they just don't seem to be going to a specific place. So he, he wants to know if I found a good way to call them or to help get them closer. Uh, Axis deer hunting is becoming more and more popular. And if you have something like that, where maybe you got a small piece of property and this, this could go for deer hunting, like whitetail hunting, whatever. I mean, it, there's a lot of places in this country where you don't have big tracks of public land. You got to hunt smaller little pieces. So, an ambush tactic is going to be your best bet. Kind of creating some kind of pattern with the animal, whether it's whitetails, whether it's axis deer, figuring out when they come to where they are, what is it that they like? Are they bedding there? Are they feeding there? Are they just traveling through? Identifying that and then trying to exploit that. Now with axis deer in particular, I do actually call them quite a bit and I use my elk calls for that. A cow call mostly. They make a chirp sound like a and that can maybe help entice them your way. Uh, Axis deer do kind of rut year round. So if you hear some, they don't necessarily bugle, they more squeal like, man, I'm making a lot of uh, horribly enacted animal noises this podcast, but that sound of an Axis deer buck, you know, kind of sounding off like their form of a bugle. Once you hear it, you can actually try to mimic that I've called them in with my voice, but that cow call works pretty good. Um, if you don't have a diaphragm call, honestly, the hoochie mama, I guess a primos makes it whatever that like push button elk call works pretty good for axis deer. Another tactic that I've found that works pretty solid is like a fawn in distress call. So what that is, is that's the sound of a fawn that maybe is, is in danger or another deer. And what happens is the axis deer are herd animals. So if in the right conditions, they may run in and try to charge whatever's on that animal to get it away. And so by blowing that call, you could possibly have them run into your location. And those work on uh, other animals too. I've, I've used deer in distress calls with success. And it, there's kind of two reactions. They either run away or they run into you. Um, I've used them on mule deer in the Southwest, primarily like desert mule deer down in Arizona. Um, I've actually used it early season in some Nevada locations as well. Uh, blacktails, I've used a distress call. I've used it on whitetails does a couple times as well. So the there are calls for a lot of different types of deer that aren't just mating calls. Those distress calls can work pretty good. Um, they also work pretty well on javelina if you happen to have a chance for those, um, especially being down in Texas. Maybe that's something you might have running around as well or hogs. Actually, distress calls do work for hogs too. I've called a few in with that. So that's that's an option. Kind of went down a rabbit trail there of distress calls, but I think it's it's a good tactic to know. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? 
You need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't is because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. All right, Alex has a question here. He says, hey, Remy, really dig the podcast. I'm a lifetime East Coast guy who moved to Colorado a couple years ago, and I've really dove into backpack hunting, climbing 14ers, the whole shtick. He says, I've been doing more long trips for hunting recently and have been planning increasingly longer out-of-state hunts. I just listened to your meat, care, and transportation podcast and got to ask, what about the hard-sided coolers? In DIA, I see dudes with two big-ass coolers uh, to schlep elk come in all the time. Did they fly the empties in, buy them in town after a successful harvest? I might have missed it, but have to know. That's a great question. So I think what he's saying is, well, obviously what he's saying is in the airport, you know, you see these guys coming back from an elk hunt and wherever, Denver, wherever, and just, you know, like hard-sided coolers. I've done that in the past where I, I would just essentially buy cheap coolers after I was successful somewhere, like go to Walmart, buy a cheap cooler, fly it home. I just ended up with a cooler graveyard of cheap coolers that were just garbage. So I stopped doing that. I felt like it was fairly wasteful, quite expensive, and that's why I started using those soft-sided coolers because I got a lot more uses out of them throughout the year. Not that you can't use those other coolers throughout the year, but they just didn't, they just weren't as good a quality. And I had some really good Yeti coolers that I take on trips. So some guys will fly with their coolers, like 
pack their gear in a cooler, fly with it. It's bulky. It can be, it just depends on how remote you're going or where you're flying or kind of, you know, if you rent a, a car and you've got like all your, you and your buddy's gear and in coolers in a rental car, it doesn't work that well. So a lot of guys end up buying them later. Um, I don't necessarily think that that's necessary. I, I mean, I've found that the soft-sided coolers work just as well, or I mean, even just like, um, meat boxes work good, like wax boxes, uh, putting something in there and just making sure it's something that's not going to leak, but the hard sided cooler does work as well. And for most airlines, you can actually put dry ice in there. I can't remember if I mentioned that or not, but if you've got a hard sided cooler that vents, it has to vent. You've got to have that vent open, but you can pack dry ice in there as long as you label it and um, check with your airline regulations, but that's another great way to do it. So I guess if I missed talking about that, that's definitely also another option when you're traveling is to just pick up some coolers after you're successful, rolling whatever. But I think it's just better to arrive with your own stuff or have kind of a like a another plan. On like the recent caribou hunt, I just use like a Yeti Panga, which is just a, a big dry bag. I froze my meat, put it in that bag and then just i actually had some of those yeti ice things in there with it and then just checked it as frozen and everything came back home frozen and that's just like a light way to do it just a large dry bag instead of a cooler the bottom of the plane is pretty cold as long as it's frozen ahead of time you're going to be fine for the majority of a day especially if you're flying on an airline that has some kind of cold storage which i did talk about a little bit so lots of options just kind of pick the one that works for you and uh, go with it. All right. I got a lot of questions on this same topic, so we're definitely going to cover it. This one comes from Will Rogers. He says, any advice on hunting spike elk? I have a spike tag in Utah, and I'm interested if you have anything on that. It's a rifle hunt, starts October 3rd, and goes till the 15th. Love your content. Thanks. Yeah, so, you know, you think about a lot of areas may have you know different tags some areas might be bull only tags some areas are any elk tags some areas are brow tine bull which you know a brow tine coming off the lower third of the horn or some tags might be spike tags i would say areas that offer spike tags often are and this is just kind of a a general rule i don't know about the place you're hunting but often places offer spike tags in limited entry units for what would be considered maybe trophy bulls. So an area that's kind of hard to draw, they'll throw out some spike tags because they've got maybe too many bulls, but they don't want to shoot that higher age class bull because there's guys with a lot of points have been waiting a long time. They're managing it for trophy potential, good age class. So to kind of help the population and maintain the good age structure, they offer a few spike tags or maybe like over-the-counter spike tags and cow tags, things like that. So you actually have a really good opportunity to harvest a bull in those areas because the elk get pressured a lot less. The hard part might be sometimes finding a spike. So you have to understand like spikes are bulls, but they act more like a combo between bulls and cows. What that means is they still like to be in those big groups, um, especially in the beginning of October, they're still going to be grouped up. So as everything's rutting, spikes like to be in the action, just like the bulls, but they're kind of a little standoffish. So you'll find spikes on their own, but you'll also find spikes in those big groups of cows. I would focus on two things early. So I'd focus on finding the cows, because those groups and the spikes will probably be there. Another tactic is, Spikes can be pretty easy to call in. 
and they they can respawn. So if you see a lone spike throughout some cow calls, some stuff like that as you're hunting, and especially early October, you'll probably call a few in. Now, obviously, same tactics as anything else. Glassing a lot is going to really help you find where the elk are at. I mean, there's no real specific place that spikes will hang out that's different than maybe your bigger bulls but you should concentrate on those areas where there's a lot of cows because they'll probably be there now later in the season spikes will actually i've seen groups of spikes of like 15 16 spikes Um, but generally you know as it gets later most cow groups will have a spike or two in it so start finding elk and you're going to just start finding those spikes and that's that's a good way to do it whereas those bulls might pull off later in the season and be off on their own the spikes are actually probably going to pull in and start joining with those groups that they've been hanging out with since the rut all right we've got a couple gear questions here so shane tyler says I've got a gear-related question for you. What tripod would you recommend for glassing? My Vanguard took a crap on me this past week, and I'm looking for a new one. I can't remember if you've covered this topic in your podcast or not. If you don't mind giving me a recommendation, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I've used a lot of different tripods over the years. A couple that really kind of stand out to me. It's funny because actually the tripod that I use mostly is one that I picked up at Costco for like 80 bucks 10 years ago, and they don't even make them anymore. I only say that because just the tr- my tripod use for what I do is like when I'm solo hunting and self-filming, I like that, like a ball head, but it's not necessarily the best for like glassing and other things. So the tripods that I use may not even be the ones that I suggest because if you're just using it for hunting, I think there's a lot of really good hunting tripods that have better features. A couple that probably come to mind the most, uh, Outdoorsman has some great options. It's uh, they're aluminum, super durable. Uh, they've got a couple different pan head option or like a pistol grip. If you like the pistol grip, they also have a pistol grip with like a pan effect. Uh, use that one a lot. Um, I use the the shorter, the smaller one. I can't remember exactly which model it is, but I've used that one over the years a lot. And because I really like their mounting system for the binoculars, which can go on any tripod as well, but their binocular mounting system is like, I think the best one out there, hands down. Um, another tripod I've used a lot is the the vortex ones i mean i work with vortex and use their optics so i get access to their a lot of their tripods as well Um, there's some pretty good tripods like i think the one that i use the most would be the the summit that one i use quite a bit and i've actually got to test i don't even know if i'm allowed to talk about it but i've been testing a new one that is going to replace my old tripod that i'm pretty stoked about i don't know when that's going to come out i hate to like throw out teasers but i'm pretty stoked on that Hopefully I don't get in trouble for mentioning it, but it's been fun testing it because it's it's probably one of the best tripods I've tested in a while. So pretty stoked on that. All right, this question, I actually don't know who it comes from. For some reason, the name is not here, but it's a good question. So it says, uh, I know most of the questions you have have to do with the main three, elk, deer, antelope. My question is when hunting desert sheep, are there different tactics you use for locating and there's places you might start search? first with compared to the other three he drew a desert u tag in nevada and even though it's not a ram he's pretty excited to have a chance to chase these awesome animals and wants to use the experience to learn more so when one day he maybe gets a ram tag he's been sheep hunting before that's an awesome idea i mean finding any kind of desert sheep can be difficult sometimes or easy it just depends if you're looking in the right areas so you want to find those good vantages desert sheep country is very open so you're going to find 
I would say the first place to scout is finding those glassing areas where you can cover a lot of area at once. Now, there's a couple different types of desert sheep habitat. The first is like more mountainous. So you're going to be probably glassing from the bases, glassing up at the mountain. Then the other option is the more broken country where you're going to be going on the top and then checking the fingers below. If you can get at the bottom and look up into the mountains, that's going to be key. Another key thing is anything in the desert, got to focus on one of their favorite things, and that's going to be water. So sheep use terrain as cover. You know, they aren't going to be going and bedding in trees mostly, unless some areas are a little bit different, but they're using terrain as cover. So the more rugged, rocky stuff, that's where you use like to be. They like to be protected, kind of keep their lambs safe. So they're going to be in some of those more higher peaks, but they're also going to be around water sources. So locating those water sources, and then that's where I would start my search and then kind of spreading out from there. This question comes from Braxton Hellstern. He says, I have a question on gear weight. I've been backpacking all my life and was raised with Boy Scout idea of be prepared or in backpacking, bringing a ton of stuff you probably don't need. This year he's been trying to shed down on pack weight and size. I'm wondering if I can get some tips on shedding weight budget friendly if possible as I'm in college. What would you say people bring that they don't need? And what are some things you would recommend spending more money on to get smaller, lighter versions of? This can be related to rifle western hunting gear or just backpacking camping gear that's a great question you know i've spent a lot of time a lot of years kind of honing the the pieces in my in my backcountry kit and i try to get the lightest best stuff possible and over the years that's taken a lot of years to gain up some of that stuff i was always looking for discounted things um lighter stuff i would say the first most important like if you're going to spend any amount of money on backpacking gear the number one top thing i would recommend is a pack like expensive packs are expensive because they're good generally and getting a lighter pack that you can still carry a lot of weight like that's the most uncomfortable touch point of the whole process is something to carry it in so it's uncomfortable so you want to get something that's comfortable you want to get something that's a little bit lighter but makes the felt weight seem reduced so a really good pack is is key plus for hunting application you're you're using it to get in and you're also using it to carry your meat out so a high quality pack is like if i'm going to spend money on something that's where i'm investing my money the other stuff i can figure out later Um, the second thing i would say would be like a sleeping bag because lightweight but warm is what you want and there's there can be a big difference in like packability size wise i like to go with i've mentioned it before i use down i've used synthetic in the past i've i've completely switched my philosophy i used to be an all synthetic guy and looking for lightweight really warm synthetics but now i've gone to that downside because i just find it packs better it's smaller it takes up less size and is a lot lighter for the amount of warmth you get and, and those are probably, I would say, the two main things. The other part of that question was things that people bring too much of. If you just want to shed weight on your pack, I, I know for a fact people bring too many clothes. You need to have the clothes you wear, something warm, and some rain gear. I mean, I've seen so many people bring an extra pair of pants. I mean, here's what I have is I have a warm shirt. If it's like later season or whatever, I've got a warm shirt, a base layer, my pants, my outer layer. Then I have for warmth, a puffer jacket and rain gear and a beanie and gloves. And that's what I have. And maybe for like, depending on how many days you're going, I've got a couple extra pairs of socks and maybe an extra pair of underwear if I'm going for like a week. (laughs) I know that sounds disgusting, but um, you don't need like doubling up on things that you probably won't use. 
So that's just some like right there an immediate way to make it lighter. If you're going to double up on anything, I double up on like a flashlight. So I have a headlamp and then I have like a handheld flashlight that's a higher beam. So for finding your way out in the dark, if you've got, not necessarily for finding your way out in the dark, but checking those, like that headlamp only works for, I'd say close situations and I can use that longer light. Or if one of those lights goes down, it's nice to have a little bit of a backup. Or if you're with a buddy, his, his dies, here you go, dude here's an extra. So that's something that I was like, okay, if you're going to have a little extra something, but I generally try not to double up on things or find a multiple uses for a lot of different gear that you have. So thinking critically about your gear. And if you go on, I've said it before, but if you go on a trip, you have something in your pack that you're like, man, I haven't used this in a trip or two. Don't bring it. Like you probably don't need it until you need it. And then you'll wish that you had it, but you'll still probably get by. So you'll be good. All right, so this last question here comes from Andrus. It says, hey, Remy, thank you for your awesome podcast. I have enjoyed it since it first aired. I have a fourth season Colorado deer tag this fall and live in Georgia. Could you give any tips for using slash when to use snow chains on your truck in late season conditions? I'm not sure what road conditions would warrant chains versus just four-wheel drive. Thank you. That is an excellent question, and I honestly think that there's a lot of things that have to do with vehicles and the types of things you need in your vehicle when you come out west on a hunt. It's it's big country. A lot of it's remote. A lot of the roads are rugged and rough. There's maybe things that in your area you aren't used to. Every year I am in some way assisting somebody with out-of-state plates in like their vehicle, assisting either pulling them out, either um, – having to cut down a tree, fix it. Like there's just so many things that I think a lot of people are unprepared for. And that's why I think this is a really good question. So if you want the answer to this question, you're going to have to listen to next week's podcast because next week I'm actually going to be talking about the 20 top items that you have to have in your vehicle to hunt out West, things that you're going to need for recovery and ways to use them, how to use them. If your area that you've grown up in doesn't necessarily have the same conditions that match out here for driving and just off-road travel. So next week, it's going to be all about overlanding while hunting. I definitely think that you're going to want to listen to that because there's going to be some stuff that this is just a public service announcement that I've realized over the years and especially Like, I feel like I've seen a lot of people this year in situations that they just weren't prepared for. So before you come out here, I'm going to help get you prepared for the things you need to have in your vehicle next week. So until then, keep getting after it. Keep sending me your questions because we're going to keep compiling these over the course of the month. And then I'll do another Q&A here coming up. And also any, like, like I said, tips or things that you want to hear about, topics, those are always awesome to hear about because those eventually become podcasts. So keep sending all that stuff in. You know, you can reach out to me via Instagram at Remy Warren or Remy at the Generally during the hunting season, I'm probably using the Instagram more often for questions because I'm kind of in and out doing these podcasts on the road in between hunts. Uh, who knows? Like sometimes I'm doing them in the tent or in the back of a truck or in a crazy i mean like a little cabin right now so um just keep those coming in and anywhere i get service i can i just screenshot them and answer those questions and then hopefully build out some topics that you guys want to hear about so thank you guys so much for listening and we'll catch you next week
Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.